today we're going to talk about the theological question, what is the Trinity? So before we begin, let me just pray and ask for God's wisdom and understanding, because this can be sometimes a confusing topic. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and that we can assess a topic like the Trinity by studying your entire word and understanding who you are as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I pray that in this conversation, things will be made clearer, less confusing, less mysterious, and that it would help us to worship you better as a triune God. And so please come and give me clarity of speech and give each one of us clarity of thought as we learn more about you as the one true God. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So the doctrine of the Trinity, it is this, that there is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, who is Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God. So I'll say that first part again, that it's one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons. So God, in his very being, has always existed as more than one person. He did not create the Son or the Spirit eternally there were three persons as one God. All the attributes of God are true of all three persons. Each are fully God. The only exception is Jesus has a human body now, which he did not have beforehand, before he came to earth. They were all three like a spirit, but now he continued to have his body in heaven, and God the Father and the Holy Spirit are both spirits. That is the only thing different in their attributes would be the physical form. The Trinity is actually not a word you can find in the Bible. You can't look up Trinity and be like, oh, here are all the verses that use the word Trinity. So it's a term that we had to come up with to help us better understand who God is. And what Trinity means is tri-unity, which tri, you know, means three, or it can also mean three in oneness. Isn't that beautiful? Three in oneness. Now, the first thing to understand when you're thinking about the Trinity is that there are actually distinct roles for each person in the Trinity. They each function and do things differently as part of the Godhead. They are distinct persons, one God. So let's look at Genesis 1.26. This is where we first see this happen when in the very first chapter of the Bible, if you read slowly, you would catch it. And it says, let us make man in our image. So there is more than one person involved in creation and in creating mankind. So we want to think about, well, what role did each member of the Trinity carry out in creation? What role did the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit play in creation? God the Father spoke the earth into being. John 1, 3 says that Jesus actually carried out these words. It says, all things were made through him, Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
So God the Father said, let's make creation. Jesus helped create it. And then the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters, which means he sustained God's presence in creation. The Holy Spirit sustains God's presence in creation. Here's another question. How are there different roles within the Trinity when we think about our salvation? In salvation, God the Father is the one who sent the Son, Jesus. And he sent Jesus with a specific mission in mind, John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, right? And then Jesus obeyed the will of the Father, that is in John 6, 38. And then when Jesus went back to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to finish the work in us, the sanctifying work that needs to happen to help us become more like Jesus and pursue perfection and holiness. There are also different roles we can see in the book of Jude. Jude, verses 20 and 21. It says this, Build yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So the rules we see in this verse are we are to be praying in the Spirit, that there is something about saying, Holy Spirit, help me to pray. Help me to pray what you want me to pray. Help me to pray the Lord's will. Guide me in my prayer. And then the next thing we see is that we are to be keeping in the love of God. That the Father, the Father, the eternal Father loves us so much, he sent his Son. That we can rest in that love. And then where does mercy come from? Jesus. Because Jesus paid the price for our sins, and he is offering us mercy at the cross. That leads to eternal life. We see another example of the Trinity in Matthew 3, 16, and 17 when Jesus was baptized. It was there that three different activities were happening. God the Father was speaking, right? He said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was physically being baptized. And then the Holy Spirit was resting on Jesus. In fact, this passage is the first time the people got to see the Trinity for themselves. They might have alluded to it in these Old Testament verses we read, but this is the first time it became evident there is a triune God. So both Jesus and the Holy Spirit, as we see through the narrative of the New Testament, submit to the Father, but they are still an equal deity to the Father. There is a sense of submission in their roles, but it does not make them less God. The next thing we want to focus on is that each member is distinct in their personhood. This is crucial to understand that each member of the Trinity are distinct in their personhood, meaning Jesus cannot be the Holy Spirit. Okay? And Jesus is clearly not the Father. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father. They are all distinct and separate. And here's an example of what I hear people say because they're not always thinking about how they are distinct persons. And maybe you have heard this or even said this yourself. 
that to say something like this, the spirit inside of us is Jesus's spirit, as if Jesus is inside of us. But it's the Holy Spirit that's inside of us. He is his own person. It's not, oh, Jesus had a spirit and we've infused Jesus's spirit in us. No, that is the Holy Spirit, a separate person than Jesus. How do we know that? Where biblically does it say Jesus is right now? Jesus is seated because his work is complete at the right hand of the Father. That is why he sent the Spirit to be in us while he is seated at the right hand of the Father, if we're going to think positionally, right? Though we know God the Father is what? Everywhere. We talked about that the other week, right? So to understand that, and because and, and, sometimes you hear this mixture of like, almost like Jesus owns the Spirit and then that's in us and that's not what it is. So let's talk about Jesus first. Jesus is God. And if there is any church that says anything different, then that is an unbiblical, unchristian, possibly a cult type of, of view. Jesus has to be seen as God. John 1, 1 through 2 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And this is referring to Jesus. The word is Jesus, showing that he is eternal and yet distinct from the Father. Jesus is seen as our advocate, as our high priest before the Father, and he's interceding for us. So he has a specific role with the Father about us, right? He's our advocate and he's interceding for us. That is Jesus's role. Now, an example would be the Jehovah Witnesses will say that this verse means they will write this. If you read their Bible, it says the word was a God. And that a changes the whole meaning of who they see Jesus to be. When they say the word was a God, it means he's not fully divine because they believe we all can become little gods when we die. Okay, so this is a problem because they are misinterpreting the scripture and any Greek scholar would say that is not what the Greek says. No Greek scholar has ever affirmed how the Jehovah Witnesses have put this into their Bibles. So it is unaffirmed by Greek scholars. Hebrews 1.3 says that Christ is the exact imprint of the nature or being of God. He's an exact duplicate. And that's why Jesus was able to see, if, you, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? So we, we can see and learn who God the Father is because we had evidence of Christ on earth. Titus 2.13 says, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This proves Jesus is God, right? Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1.1 says this, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, he's being claimed as God. And then Romans 9, 5 says, according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all. Jesus is seen as God over all creation. And then John the Baptist quotes in Isaiah, if we go to Old Testament, Isaiah 43, he's prophesying Christ's coming in that he also says in Matthew 3, 3. And this is the prophecy. It says, in the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord. 
So Jesus is being called Lord here. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So John the Baptist's whole role was to make known that God was coming to earth and that God was Jesus, right? And so these are all verses you could sit down with a friend that is a Jehovah Witness and say, let's not look at that one verse in your Bible that says a God. Let me show you how many times the Bible confirms Jesus is God, right? And that's important for us to see and share with others. Here's something interesting. When you, when you read words that don't say Jesus, God the Father, right, Holy Spirit, what about the word Lord? When you read the word Lord in the scriptures, this usually, not all, I'll show you some exceptions, but usually it means Jesus, God the Son. So when you read something, Lord, Lord, this usually means someone is talking about Jesus. Think about when we share the gospel, we say, do you want to make Jesus Lord of your life? We say Jesus is our Lord and Savior. It's in our vernacular as Christians. But yet sometimes when we read the Bible, we're like, well, who's the Lord? Which one of the Trinity is the Lord? Well, it's Jesus. <laughs> okay. Most of the time when we read the word Lord, it means Jesus. So why do you think it is crucial to believe Jesus is equally God and not created by the Father or not eternal like the Father? For sure, salvation would not make sense if Jesus was not God. It had to be per he had to be perfect. He had to be able to resist all of that temptation. He had to be able to raise himself from the dead. So there is a lot encompassing Jesus had to be God. We know in Colossians 2.9, Jesus said this, that the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, that he was the whole fullness of deity, but in bodily form. He was fully God and fully man at the same time. And Thomas, doubting Thomas, one of his disciples saw Jesus as God when he said, my Lord and my God. So again, he is worshiping and Jesus didn't say, nope, don't call me God. He allowed Thomas to worship him as God. If Jesus was not both fully God and also a separate person from God, he could not have borne the complete wrath of God the Father because he received the wrath. He was the one who died and he was the one who rose from the dead, right? Hebrews 1.8 says this, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And it is talking about Christ's throne in Hebrews, that, that it is Christ's throne that is forever and ever. So let's talk about the Holy Spirit as God and as a person. We know the Holy Spirit is a person because he is labeled as a helper, a counselor, and a comforter. We should not call the Holy Spirit it. Okay, I hear a lot of people say, well, it, it, it. I'm like, the Holy Spirit is a person, so we're going to give him pronouns in our English language, okay? He's not an it. I've heard that many times. And so we want to realize he is a part of the Trinity as a person. Now, one confusing verse is 2 Corinthians 3.17, because it starts using the word Lord and relating it to the Spirit. Listen to this. It says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Because normally Lord means Jesus, people can often assume that's who this verse is about. But that's not the case here. Because the subject in this sentence is the Spirit. And so the Spirit is also being called Lord. 
I like this because when you are given the Holy Spirit, once you become a believer, I say he's a gentleman and he is in your life, but you will have no empowerment to overcome sin. You will have no boldness to share your faith unless you say, Holy Spirit, I want you also to be Lord of my life. Guide me, empower me, help me to live the life you want me to live. Help me to become more like Jesus. So in a sense, even though almost all scripture, Lord means Jesus, in this scripture, in 2 Corinthians, we are seeing that the Spirit is also Lord, that we need to submit to him and say, you take control of my life, Holy Spirit, not me. I don't want to live right in the Holy Spirit. I want to live in the Holy Spirit, and I want you to guide and lead my life. And so that is why that verse is so important, because when we submit our desires and our own flesh to the Holy Spirit, there will be freedom. We also know that the Holy Spirit is God because in Acts 5.3, there was the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And I don't know if you remember, but the church was gathering. People were pretty much having yard sales or selling their houses, and they were giving the money to the church. And they lied and said they had given all their money when they had not. And when they lied, how it was communicated was you lied to the Holy Spirit and that they were not lying to man, but they were lying to God. So this is a clear verse of equating the Holy Spirit to God, and that when we lie, we are lying to the Holy Spirit, who is also God. Next, God the Father. What's the Bible say about him? Well, when the Bible refers just to God, it usually means God the Father. That's normally who we are talking about. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4 through 6. It says, there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit. And there are a variety of service, but the same Lord, which is Jesus. And there are a variety of activities, but the same God, which is the Father, who empowers them all in everyone. So again, even this verse shows the Trinity. Where else is the Trinity mentioned in the Bible? Well, did you know the Trinity is mentioned in the Tower of Babel story? That in Genesis eleven seven, they are watching these people build this huge tower that they're trying to get to heaven by their own means. And what it says in Genesis eleven seven is the Father says, "Come, let us go down," and they're confused their language so that they could no longer build. So again, you see God making a decision in community with the Trinity saying, let us go do this together. Let us go down and confuse their language. Isaiah 6, 8. They're talking to Isaiah the prophet and it says, whom shall I send? As if God the Father is sending, but who will go for us? So God the Father sends, but who will go for us? Because we're all united in the mission, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and they need a prophet to go and, and speak to the people. So again, you see, even though one's singular, the other is plural, right? Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? 
In 2 Corinthians 13, 4, it says this. This clearly shows the Trinity as well. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, look, there it is. He's Lord, right? And the love of God. Are we seeing a theme that love comes from the Father? And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Why fellowship with the Holy Spirit? Because he's the one that indwells you. He's the one that empowers you. He's the one that speaks to you. He's the one that convicts you of sin. He's the one that ha has you want to repent. He's the one that gives you wisdom what to say. He's the one that helps you to forgive. So the person you might have technically the most fellowship with in the Trinity is actually the Holy Spirit. You see that in that verse. 1 Peter 1.2 says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. So what do we learn about each person in the Trinity in this verse? God the Father has the foreknowledge of what is going to happen, what needs to happen, and what will happen, right? But where does sanctification happen? Sanctification means becoming more like Jesus, getting closer to perfection and holiness. And who helps us with our sanctification but the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit right? Again, dwells in us. He needs to be Lord as well. Why? For obedience to Jesus Christ. We cannot be obedient to Jesus Christ without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And then we don't want to use, here's a verse that could be misconstrued, 1 John 5, 7. This verse says this, which seems great at first. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And this seems like, whoa, this is like one of the clearest verses on the Trinity in the Bible. But it's actually based on a very small number of unreliable Greek manuscripts. And the earliest we can find this verse is the 14th century AD. So I would say don't use that verse to prove because it's not in every manuscript and it just showed up very late. I think someone tried to put it in because in the early church, they were trying to understand the doctrine of the Trinity. So I think someone just put that in there because we don't have evidence in older manuscripts. So that one you should not use. If you just happen to be reading for Sean, like, I found another one, <laughs> you know, that one might not be as um, valid. Uh, Psalm 110.1 says this. This is really confusing. This is, listen, David wrote this. It says, the Lord says to my Lord, what? <laughs> the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So right here, there's two different people being called Lord, and it's actually the Father and the Son. The Lord, the Father, said to the Son, because we know Jesus is right now seated at the right hand of the Father, and that God the Father said, I will make your enemies, you know, under your footstool. So that is one time we see the Father being called Lord. But it's two separate people, the Father and the Son. And this showed that David, even in the Old Testament, was aware of the plurality of persons in one God. Isaiah 48, 16 also has Trinitarian implications. It says, now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. So see, Jesus again isn't saying, and I will send you my spirit. Jesus is seeing himself distinctly separate from the Holy Spirit. And this was spoken by Jesus. So this includes all three persons of the Trinity in Isaiah 48, 16. 
And then finally, Matthew 28, 18 through 19 shows that they are all equal because it says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And when you're baptized, what do we say? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So they are seen as God within even our ordinance of baptism, that they are all present as we are getting baptized. So let's talk about how can then it be called only one God, right? We just clearly showed how there are three distinct persons in the Bible. Yet the Bible constantly emphasizes there is only one God. There is only one God. God is only one being. So Romans 3.30 says this, God is one. 1 Timothy 2.5, this is one God. So the Trinity is a mystery that we can only describe and know in part right? And here's what we have to be careful of, especially when we try to teach this to children or new believers. All analogies that you can think of when it comes, like you say water and H2O and ice or the types of an egg, the outside of the egg, the gooey part, and then the yellow part. Like we, people think of all of these analogies that they're trying to help explain the Trinity, but they all fall short when we're trying to compare God to something he created in creation. And so we want to be careful of that because he's more complex than anything he ever created. So we cannot have a great analogy to explain the Trinity. And here's a, a reason I would suggest we don't use these faulty analogies because scripture nowhere uses an analogy to teach the doctrine. I mean, Jesus was full of giving parables. Jesus was full of giving stories, but not once did he or any of the early church fathers feel it necessary to use an analogy to teach the doctrine of the Trinity? So maybe we should shy away from that because we're, we're showing something false when we do that. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Another example, Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord, there is no other, beside me there is no God. There is no other God beside me, a righteous God and Savior. This is in Isaiah. A righteous God and Savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I mean, it's just, there's no other God. There's no other. Now, obviously, it's because they were dealing with other people around them that believed in multiple gods, right? And multiple false gods. And so... What God is trying to emphasize in the Old Testament, though we now know he is three persons, is there's only one true God. And that God is more unique than any other God that our minds or hands can create. 1 Timothy 2.5 says this, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Romans 3.30 says God is one. 1 Corinthians 8, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. Because there is only one God, this is where it gets a little heady, there's only one will. They all have to have the same will, the same desire, the same um, wanting of an outcome. There has never been a disagreement between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. There's always been three distinct expressions. So Christ had said, you think about him in the Garden of Gethsemane, and at that point, Christ seemed to want there to be another way to save us than the cross, 
right? But what was his answer? Not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so he shows submission and agreement still, even if he knew it would be a very hard path for it to be the will of the Father. Does that make sense? Because sometimes people say, oh, but look, Jesus had a different will. No, he submitted always to the will of the Father. Next, there's unity and diversity within the Trinity. We see unity and diversity in the world as a reflection of that Trinity. Now, some people might say, well, isn't it a contradiction to say it's one God, but he's three persons? Isn't that a contradiction? But our answer to that should be no. It is not a contradiction. God is three persons, but there is one God. And we can just say it is something we don't understand fully, but different aspects of both of those statements are found in scripture, so we have to believe it, even if it doesn't fully make sense. So here's how you would summarize in three points the teaching of the Trinity. God is three persons. That's your first point. God is three persons. Your second point is each person is fully God. Each of those three persons are fully God, but there is only one God. We see evidence of all three of those statements throughout scripture, even if our minds cannot comprehend how it all goes perfectly together. So the errors come when you deny any one of those three statements. Oh, okay, God is three persons and each person is God, but I can't believe that God is one God. That is an error. You can't do that. So I'm going to teach you some of the real terms of how people get the Trinity wrong. And the first one is called modalism. Modalism, sometimes people call it Sabalinism, but modalism is the main term. It claims that there is one person who appears to us, but in three different forms or three different modes. So their mistake is they're saying it's one person, not three. And that one person acts out in different ways. It makes God more similar to a human who plays different roles at different times. Like I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm a missionary, I'm a teacher, I'm a friend, I'm a sister, right? We have different roles in life, but I'm not a different person for all of those different roles. And this is where modalism has a problem. It denies that the three persons of the Trinity are distinct individuals and it would deny the interpersonal relationships that they have with each other. So it denies there's fellowship within the Trinity because I don't have fellowship with myself as a wife and then I have fellowship with myself as a mother. Like it's silly, right? But there's clearly fellowship between the Trinity. So we see it cannot be modalism. It cannot be one person having different roles. It will also lose the heart of what the atonement is about the necessary payment for our sins. The idea that God, who is one person, sent his son, who is a substitutionary sacrifice, and the son has to bear the wrath of God in our place, and the father saw the sufferings of Christ and said, it's satisfied. You are atoned because of what Jesus did for you and received the wrath of God. And that would not make sense if it was one person doing the same roles. God did not send the father to the, then, I mean, it doesn't make sense, right? Then who's in heaven still, right? So modalism doesn't work. This view is held by the United Pentecostal Church. So if you know people that are very Pentecostal, not just charismatic, but Pentecostal, United Pentecostal Church believes in modalism. The next one is called Arianism. 
And this denies the full deity of the Son and the Holy Spirit, that only God the Father is full deity, is what Arianism would believe. So they do believe in three distinct persons, but only one is really, really God. And it began with this guy named Arius. He was an elder of the church in Alexandria, which is Egypt. And he taught that God the Son was at one point created by God the Father, even though it was before time was created, and that the Son and the Spirit did not exist before that. So Arianism pretty much says it was God the Father, he created the Son and the Spirit. That's not true. We know all existed for all of eternity, so that cannot be true. And this was actually condemned at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, so pretty recently after Christ, just a few couple hundred years later. Arian teaching would deny that Jesus is of the same nature of God. So he's not the same nature of God. He's different, which we know is not true. They focus on John 1.14 to defend their view. And John 1.14 says this, that Jesus was God's what? Only begotten son, as if he was actually born of the father. So this word begotten has gotten us in a lot of trouble in scripture. And also Colossians 1.15, Christ is said to be the firstborn of all creation. So they're taking these two verses. If Christ was begotten and Christ was the firstborn, then he had to be created. And if you don't think more deeply, you're like, huh, well, maybe so then, right? Just these two verses. So what do we have here? Why do we do systematic theology? Because we can't place a whole theology on who Jesus is based on just two verses that might sound slightly convincing versus everything else we know about Jesus. How many times did I show you verses that said he was God, he is Lord, he is, right? So all these verses way outweigh these two verses. But how do we reconcile begotten and that he was the firstborn of all creation? Well, we've learned that begotten cannot mean created, but it actually refers to something in an eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. So here's how the Nicene Creed, it's an ancient creed, this is how they word it. The only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, but begotten not made. So the problem is, is no one knew how to define this word begotten in the early church, but they knew it did not mean Jesus was created. Does that make sense? So that's what they're saying. Like, all right, we're not going to deny this word begotten's there. We can't erase anything from scripture, right? But we know begotten does not mean made or created. So what, what could it mean? You need to look at the word begotten as this, that he is one of a kind, that Jesus is unique. So Jesus is still different than the Father, though he is still God. Though we have to realize begotten is not really ever clearly defined, even now, thousands of years later. Most modern translations, if you have a modern translation, you're not going to see the word begotten anymore. They're going to say he gave his only son, which makes sense because Jesus offered his son. The son willingly became the sacrifice. So they've taken out of this word begotten because it's confusing people to think Jesus was created. And they've put gave his only son instead. We do know, though, that the son was not created even though it says he was from the Father, because he was sent, right, to earth from the Father. It doesn't mean he was created by the Father. How do we reconcile this firstborn in Colossians 1? It says he is the firstborn of all creation. Well, if you learn Old Testament and the idea of firstborn, what firstborn means is you have a right to all inheritance, all leadership, and all authority. 
I'm glad I'm a firstborn. I'm <laughs> just joking. So you receive all inheritance, all leadership, and all authority. And that is what is trying to be communicated in Colossians, that Jesus has been given by the Father all inheritance. He, he is over the earth. God has empowered Jesus to be over the earth, that Jesus is giving leadership and Jesus has authority, right? Who's coming back to fight that battle? God the Father or Jesus or the Holy Spirit? In Revelation, it's Jesus, right? So the firstborn was given this authority. It doesn't mean he was created. You see the difference? It's about roles. It's not about him being created. And so there's a specific order in the relationship between the father and the son. Always the biblical pattern is that it's the father through the son, the father through the son. So we're always seeing there is some sort of submission type of relationship between them. But the third one that's a false is called subordinationism, subordinationism. And that means that they are not equal to the father in being or attributes that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are actually inferior. And it was an early church father named Origen who prompted this idea, but it was again rejected at the Council of Nicaea. And we hold that there is what's called eternal subordination of Christ to the Father, eternal. He has always been submitted to the Father. But what we mean by subordination or being under him is it's one of order, office, and operation. It's of order, operation, and office, not of his essence. It doesn't make him less God. So the Father has acted as the leader before creation and after the final judgment. And the pattern is never reversed. We never see Jesus leading the Father. The Son is always seen as carrying out the will of the Father. So God the Father is the one that has the plan. He initiates, he leads, he directs, he commands, and he sends. So this is the Trinity that we've kind of discussed. We need to affirm the authority and submission as positive. Because sometimes we think of submission as negative. But this is how the roles within the Trinity work. The father initiates, the son responds. The father leads, the son follows. The father is always primary, and the son might be secondary, but he is not less than, and he is still God. So their relationship, you could think of this way, is not symmetrical. It's not symmetrical. So let me ask you this question. Why might those who hold a feminist view of male-female relationships have an issue with the eternal subordination of the son to the father? Why might there be a clash with those who hold a feminist view of male-female relationships when you see the eternal subordination of the son and the father. It's important to see here that there is a pattern of submission even within the Trinity. That's all we need to know now. But to realize, did that make Jesus less important, less God, have less character traits as the father? No. Same character, same deity. So it doesn't make him less than just because his role had him submit to the father. Another faulty view, we have two more faulty views and then we're done, is adoptionism. This is the view that Jesus actually lived as an ordinary man until his baptism, but then God adopted Jesus as his son and gave him supernatural powers because the Holy Spirit came on him. So this would not see Christ as eternal or divine. He just became this adopted son of God who then took on this mission. I don't know how he could have been a regular man for 33 years and never sinned unless he was already God, you know? I mean, that's a little ridiculous of a view. And the last one is called tritheism, tritheism. And this denies that there's only one God, 
but tri means three and theism is God. So it would mean that there have to be three gods, right? Why is it one God? Why can't it be three persons that are three gods? Here's why. We would wonder who to give our allegiance to. Am I supposed to give my allegiance to the Father? Am I supposed to give my allegiance to Jesus? Am I supposed to give my allegiance to the Holy Spirit? Which one should I care about more? Which one should I really worship? It starts to get confusing if we don't understand it is one God. All receive worship. We can pray to all three of them. We need all three of them in our life to experience love, to experience mercy and grace on the cross, to experience empowerment, to live this life. All are one in God. So the true Trinitary doctrine is important because what did we say? The atonement, salvation is at stake if we don't believe in the Trinity. If one teaches that Christ was a creating being but still saved us, think about this, then this teaching wrongly credits salvation to a creature and not God himself. If we say Jesus was just a man and no creature could have saved us, only our creator. This would exalt a creature, and it would not exalt the creator. And then justification by faith alone would also be threatened if we denied the full deity of Christ, because how could he have been perfect, right? We are all made with sin. So the correct doctrine of the Trinity was mainly influenced by this guy named Athanasius, because again, that word Trinity is not in the Bible. And he was the Bishop of Alexandria, again, Egypt, in 328 AD. He devoted his whole life to teaching against the Arian heresy that we had just talked about. And in his creed, he was clearly affirming the Trinity doctrine. And since that time, since 328, both the Catholic Church and the Protestant churches have agreed to the idea of the Trinity. We are united on this doctrine, the, the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant churches. And this has been since 400 AD. That's when the term really came around to, to understand that God is one, but God is three persons and all are equally God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you have given us this word that we can learn more about who you are, that you are one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I just pray that this time of, of studying the Trinity in the Bible and, and this theological term would help us to have a better relationship with you, that we'd be able to worship you better, pray better, and commune with you better throughout our lives. And so may we honor you. May, may we continue to desire to become more like you and help us to be able to articulate the Trinity to others as well. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.